0: Podcast. My name is Kim and as is often the case with true crime, the facts of a case can turn out stranger than fiction. But in tonight's story, much of what came to be accepted as fact did wind up to be actually fiction. Luckily, I am here for you to separate the fact from the fiction of a very notorious case. And even though we're going to be overturning some of the myths surrounding this case, it does not make it in any way a less compelling story. This is the true story of H.H. Holmes, but first, a Victorian society tip. Tonight's tip is about how not to get body snatched. Body snatching, by which I mean having your body dug up and stolen from your grave, was a real concern in the Victorian era, and most of the perpetrators guilty of this ghoulish practice were medical students. If not the medical students themselves, the acts were carried out by men known as resurrectionists. Medical schools would pay resurrectionists to supply them with a steady stream of fresh cadavers because otherwise, how are their students going to learn? It is for the greater good, I suppose, but no one wants their loved one dug up. If this is a concern you share as well, you might be interested in grave torpedoes. The following is an 1881 ad from the Howell Grave Torpedo Company of Circleville, Ohio for their patented grave torpedo. It's essentially a landmine that is triggered when anyone messes with the coffin. The Howell Grave Torpedo Company of Circleville, Ohio are now manufacturing and offering to the public the only perfect protection for the bodies of the deceased friends after burial. The Howell Grave Torpedo is an article demanded by the public. It is simple, it is quickly and safely adjusted. And it is a sure preventative against body snatching. In consequence of the great number of medical colleges all over the country, together with the facilities for shipping bodies from almost every point, grave robbing has become of alarming frequency and the horrible business of ghouls has become very profitable. Resurrectionists are required to perform their work speedily, rarely if ever removing the coffin from the grave. They generally dig down at the head of the coffin and, after breaking through or removing the lid, they fasten a strong hook under the chin and by means of a rope drag the body through the opening. After refilling the grave, they place the body in a sack, throw it into some sort of vehicle from which it is rapidly transferred to the pickling vat of some medical college for dissection. DJ Bach is sole agent for Marion, Hancock, Madison, and Hamilton counties and has on exhibition and for sale at the furniture store of Reynolds and Son in Noblesville samples of the above torpedo. He is ready now to adjust them in graves, and all parties interested are requested to call. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Tonight's episode does mention the death of children. Please take care while listening. The man we now know as H. H. Holmes was actually born Herman Webster Mudgett in 1861 in a small rural town in New Hampshire called Gilmanton. For purposes of this story, we'll refer to him as Mudgett up until the point where he officially switches to the Holmes alias. He was the third oldest of five children two sisters and two brothers. His parents, Father Levi and Mother Theodate, were devout Methodists who made sure their children attended church, and his father earned a living as a farmer, trader, and house painter. And by all accounts, he had a very typical childhood. Right out of the gate, we're debunking myths here. Some accounts of him torturing animals or being abused by his father just weren't true. When he was 16, he graduated from Phillips Exeter Academy, which I think is what we would describe as a private or prep school. Then at age 17, he married a girl named Clara Loverington, who I believe he met at Bible study. Neither family was all too thrilled with the marriage, but at least at first, they did seem to genuinely be fond of one another. The couple would also welcome a son during this time in 1880, who they named Robert. I believe it was during that same time that Mudgett apprenticed with a local doctor named Dr. White. He then went on to more formally study medicine at the University of Vermont in Burlington. And it was during this day that people did start noticing how kind of weird Mudge it was. He kept to himself a lot. He would not really acknowledge that he was married. He fought a love with his roommate and he would shut himself up in his room that he had converted into some sort of off-campus chemistry lab. No one knew what for, though. He also talked a lot about human cadavers and dissection. Like, to anyone who would listen. And with relish. And for all of his solo studying, though, he wasn't a particularly good student, and after he ran out of money to pay for another term, he returned to his town in New Hampshire and took on a teaching gig for a short while. He was not particularly good at that either, though. He was generally not well-liked, and he had a lot of complaints against him. Then in 1882, he was able to enroll in the University of Michigan as a medical student, and this time, his wife Clara and their small son moved into a boarding house near the university. The other boarders who lived in the house said the couple fought a lot and every once in a while, Clara would turn up with black eyes. Eventually, Clara picked up and moved she and her son back to New Hampshire, leaving homes behind her for good. While studying at the University of Michigan, Mudget continued to be kind of a weirdo. Now, every medical student was required to perform dissections as part of their studies, but Mudget reveled in it. He was just a little too enthusiastic about dissections. Sometimes he would try to, like, take a cadaver's foot home with him or something he also sought out a job working for the chief anatomy instructor William Herdman where he would assist with the professor's private dissection lab receive and help prepare cadavers for dissection and other duties now Dr. Herdman had a well-known reputation for working with what were called resurrectionists to help supply cadavers for his work resurrectionists of course being a more palatable term for body snatchers let's talk about them shall we? Back in the 18th century, we're talking pre-Victorian era, the 17 to 1800s, practicing medicine was not a legitimate trade. I mean, you were taking a true gamble on if the doctor was going to help or harm you by applying medical treatments. And while we might not like to think about it, the only way anyone was going to learn more about how the human body worked was to open it up and look inside. Clearly, they needed fresh bodies to study. But as you can imagine, they were hard to come by. Now, the history of resurrectionists and body snatching could take up an entire episode in itself, and I will probably definitely get there. But for tonight's purposes, what you need to know is that in the UK and US, certain laws were passed to make it easier for bodies to be donated for educational and scientific purposes. But not everywhere. Around the times Mudgett was studying, it was not a secret that most medical students were essentially responsible for supplying their own cadavers, and however you got them was your business. Mostly everyone in the medical community just looked the other way when it came to the source of cadavers. So while the two doctors at home studied under, Herman and White, were known for their openness in supporting resurrectionists and vocal supporters in the passing of laws to make bodies easier to come by, there was no actual proof that Mudgett himself was a body snatcher. So... Mudgett graduates, barely, in 1884 and heads back to New Hampshire briefly before taking a job as a physician and school teacher in a town called Moores Forks, New York. Here he gained a reputation for being a swindler and a bit of a womanizer. He was living apart from Clara, obviously. Sometimes he'd say he was single, already divorced, or seeking divorce. Either way, he seemed to propose marriage to more than a few women during this time period. And as far as the physician bit... Well, Mudgett had zero regard for the whole do-no-harm part of the Hippocratic Oath. It was very clear that he never intended to use his medical training to help anyone. In fact, Mudgett himself said he never intended to actually be a physician. He thought he was going to develop his own patent medicine in a kind of get-rich-quick scheme. Uh, Patent medicine is like an over-the-counter medicine. He did try, but he never came up with anything. Beyond that, though... The stature and knowledge his medical training afforded him was just a way for him to take advantage of people. In one instance, there was a minor smallpox outbreak, and as a doctor, he was able to get his hands on a supply of vaccines, but then he traveled around telling people they were mandatory by the government and cost 25 cents a pop, which was not true. Only a year later, Mudgett has to move along. He's racked up too many debts with too many people, and he finds himself in Norristown, Pennsylvania. From here on out, he would mostly leave behind his birth name of Herman Webster Mudgett and go by various aliases. So when he arrives in Pennsylvania, he's kind of in a bad state. He has no money, he's starving, and he goes to the police station and he says he's on the verge of taking his own life because he just doesn't know what else to do. They take pity on him and actually lock him up in jail where at least he'll be fed and have a bed to sleep in. They find a job for him as a keeper at an insane asylum, which I think just means an orderly. But he only worked there for about two weeks or two months, depending on what source you read. Then, in about May of 1886, is when he moves to Chicago. He finds he needs a pharmacist license to work in Illinois, so he sits for an exam. And after this is when he comes to be known as Harry Howard Holmes, H.H. Holmes. So, he's in Chicago. He gets a pharmacist license under a fake name. He also finds some time to apparently go to Minneapolis, for whatever reason. And it's there he meets a woman named Myrta Belknap. And they're going to get married. Except Holmes is still married to Clara. He tries to file for divorce on grounds of infidelity on Clara's part. Not true. He even claims he has custody of their son. Again, not true. But the suit falls apart and apparently everyone just forgets about it and Holmes takes Myrta as his second wife. Holmes, by this time, was most certainly an established con man. Most people who knew him around this time would tell you you couldn't trust him as far as you could throw him. He was always getting sued left and right for his swindling operations. He was not a nice guy. So in Chicago, Holmes happens upon Dr. Holton's drugstore at the corner of 63rd and Wallace. It's run by frail, elderly Dr. Holton who has been taken ill and his young wife is struggling to keep the shop afloat. Along comes young Dr. Holmes and Mrs. Holmes happily hires him to help run the business. Shortly thereafter, the Holtons disappear and Holmes says that the Holtons sold him the shop and left town, but no one could find what became of the Holtons. They've been disappeared. The suburb of Chicago that the Holtons and now Holmes' pharmacy was in was expanding at a rapid pace and Holmes wanted to be part of it. Using funds mostly from a number of investors he never intended to pay back, Holmes bought an empty lot across the street from Holton's pharmacy and began hiring construction companies to build a two story building that he would say be used as retail space on the ground floor and apartments on the second floor. He planned to operate his own pharmacy out of one of the retail spaces and live in one of the apartments with his second wife, Myrta. Construction started in August 1887, and by September 1888, it had stopped because Holmes was missing all of his payments. He wasn't concerned, though. He manipulated the courts and exploited loopholes in his construction contracts in such a way that even though the construction companies were actively suing him, construction would go forth. He would drag out the proceedings so much that by the time Holmes was officially summoned to appear in court for the first of the non-payment cases in spring of 1888, officials found the building finished, the new pharmacy open for business, and Holmes living on the second floor. In July 1889, Myrta gives birth to a daughter that they named Lucy. They move out of the apartment and into a nice house nearby. He buys a second property and in the basement he had a special furnace built to bend glass. He claimed he had a partner he was to register the business with which would be called Werner Glass Bending Company. It should be noted that any furnace hot enough to bend glass would also be hot enough to cremate someone. In 1890, it's announced that Chicago has won the bid to host the World's Columbian Exposition, the Chicago World's Fair. Its purpose was to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in the New World. The fair ran for six months, and the fairgrounds covered nearly 690 acres, featuring nearly 200 new buildings, canals, lagoons, and exhibits showcasing new technologies, art, people, and cultures from 46 countries. In the end, it attracted 27 million people to the city, and Holmes foresaw that they would need places to stay. So in 1892, he adds a third floor to his building to serve as hotel space. At the same time, in about 1891, Holmes hires a man named Connor to come work at the jewelry counter in his shop and sets up him, his wife Julia, and their daughter Pearl in one of the apartments on the second floor. Holmes and Julia begin having an affair, and when her husband finds out, he leaves, Julia and Pearl stay, and Julia continues her affair with Holmes, then she's rumored to have become pregnant. Julia demands that he marry her, and Holmes agrees, but he says they can't keep this child, and he'll perform an abortion for her. Christmas Eve of 1891 is the last anyone hears of Julia and her daughter. Holmes claims they went back to Iowa to visit family, but it's later reported that he killed her by overdosing her with chloroform and using one of his resurrectionist contacts to have the body turned into an articulated skeleton that he could then sell to one of the medical schools. In his business dealings, Holmes also became acquainted with a man named Benjamin Peitzel. Peitzel had a wife and five kids, and just like Holmes, he's not entirely on the up-and-up either being a fan of insurance and patent scams and the like. So Peitzel becomes Holmes' kind of sidekick in all these cons that he's running. Sometime in 1892, Holmes hires Emmeline Segrand. He either hired her through an employment agency or Peitzel found her for him, but either way, she moved to Chicago for the purpose of working for Holmes. They also began an affair, but after a short while, her family stops hearing from her. They write directly to Holmes to ask for help and he tells them she met a man and she got married and she left. Holmes later confesses that once she came to learn too much about his dealings, he locked her in his vault and left her there until she died. Holmes is also said to have something to do with the disappearance of Emily Van Tassel in 1892. She was 16 and she worked at a candy shop near his glass bending studio and one day she went out with him and never came back. The same year, Holmes takes a trip to Boston and strikes up a romance with a woman named Minnie Williams. Minnie was orphaned at a young age and later received a land inheritance from her uncle. So she's got a little bit of money. Holmes returned to Chicago and he and Minnie continue a long-distance affair until Minnie moves to Chicago in about 1893 to work for Holmes as his personal stenographer. Holmes convinces Minnie to sign the deed for her property in Texas over to him. Now, knowing what we do so far of Holmes, this sounds bad for Minnie, but Minnie may not have been entirely innocent here either. She signed for a number of goods and materials in connection with Holmes' schemes and didn't seem to think twice about non-payment or things of that sort. And at some point, they presented themselves as husband and wife for some reason or another. Some theorize that Minnie may have even been trying to con Holmes for whatever influence or wealth or connections she thought he had. Regardless, this does go badly for her. At some point, Minnie's sister Annie came to Chicago to visit, and it seemed like she was being folded into whatever Minnie and Holmes had going on, but after July 5th, 1893, neither of the sisters are ever seen alive again. By the way, this entire time, Myrta, his second real wife, was just living life, I guess, busy raising their daughter that she had with Holmes. In fact, at one point, Holmes had a new house built for them, which was actually in Minnie Williams' name, and Myrtle doesn't appear to be any the wiser. In 1893, a fire breaks out at Holmes' hotel. The fire started on the third floor, which was actually not even finished, and multiple witnesses saw Holmes and a companion moving a lot of furniture and other things of value out of the building just the day before. No surprises here, it's widely believed that Holmes set the fire on the third floor himself. His insurance companies are looking a little too closely at the case, and he decides it's time to skip town. In 1894, he leaves Chicago, and his first stop is Denver, Colorado, to collect some sort of insurance payout for Minnie Williams, I believe. While there, he meets and marries Georgiana Yoke. So whereas Myrta seemed completely in the dark about Holmes' crimes and cons, and Minnie may have very well been complicit in a number of them, Georgiana is kind of in the middle. She's aware that he uses a number of aliases. In fact, she never knew him by his earlier alias of H.H. Holmes at all. But by the end of all this, she's viewed as another victim in his schemes as well. So Georgiana starts accompanying Holmes around the western and southern states as he goes about collecting on Minnie's inheritances. He runs into some trouble in Missouri, where he's briefly jailed on the charge of selling mortgage goods. While in jail, he meets Marion Hedgepath, a famed Wild West outlaw. Who might get his own episode down the line, by the way? Holmes starts talking to Hedgepath about a scheme he's been dreaming up on faking his own death for the life insurance money. And can Hedgepath recommend a lawyer he trusts that he thinks would be complicit in this scheme? If he does, Holmes will give Hedgepath a commission once the plan is completed. Hedgepath, being a career criminal himself, does know a lawyer he can recommend. So once Holmes is out of jail, he visits a lawyer who is game, and Holmes puts his plan into motion. It doesn't go as he plans, though, when the insurance company becomes suspicious and won't pay out on the policy. So Holmes decides he'll try again, this time faking Peitzel's death. Except he actually kills him. The plan, as far as Peitzel was informed, was that he was to go to Philadelphia under an alias and he and Holmes would stage a lab explosion, substituting an unrecognizable cadaver for Peitzel. No one really knows if this was Holmes' true plan and he changed his mind or if he planned to off Peitzel all along, but what really happened was that Peitzel showed up to the offices they rented, either drunk already or Holmes got him drunk and then chloroformed him to death. He staged a scene to appear like Peitzel had tried to light a pipe too close to a burner an explosion occurred and killed Paitzel instantly. Then Holmes and wife three or four, depending on how you count, Georgiana, left town. This was on September 1st, 1894. On September 3rd, an inventor named Eugene Smith, who was eager to talk about a patent he was seeking, stopped by the Philadelphia office and found it strangely quiet. He investigates and of course finds cell in a state of decomposition, but probably not quite as decomposed as Holmes was hoping for, because they can clearly see an unusual red fluid leaking out of his mouth and it doesn't take much investigating for everyone to agree that he was not killed by this blast, and this is a staged crime scene. Meanwhile, Holmes arrives in St. Louis to inform Peitzel's widow, Carrie Peitzel, of her husband's death. Now, Carrie seemed to be kind of in on the original scheme, and had in fact planned to travel to Philadelphia to identify the body. But she had been counting on falsely identifying the body of a cadaver under the name Perry, which was the alias her husband had been going by. So imagine her true shock and horror when she hears that her husband, Benjamin Peitzel, is actually dead. But Holmes shows up, and Carrie has met him a few times, and he assures her, no, 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 this is all part of the plan. But it so happens that Carrie and her youngest child are sick, too sick to travel. So Holmes suggests sending the second eldest daughter, Alice, who is 15, instead. To us, 15 is a child, but in the Victorian era, 15 was pretty well grown up by then. And Alice goes, and she positively identifies the body as her father. The shady lawyer has filed the proper paperwork, allowing Holmes to collect the life insurance payout, which he does, and he gives part to Carrie and says he's using the rest to settle some debts for he and Paitzel, which Carrie understood was the intent all along. While he's delivering the pail to Carrie, he somehow convinces her to send two of her other children, Nellie and Howard, with him back to Philadelphia to be with their sister. And then he starts making arrangements for the entire family to be reunited in Canada, he says. He told the Pitzell family that their father was only in hiding, after all. So, the next couple of weeks are a whirlwind in which Holmes orchestrates the movement of he and his wife Georgiana... Carrie Peitzel and her youngest and oldest child and the three middle Peitzel children all over the country. They stay in multiple cities always taking different trains or train cars staying in different hotels sometimes only blocks away from one another. All the while Carrie asking to be reunited with her three middle children. He keeps telling her we're on our way to where your husband is and you'll all be reunited then. The three Peitzel children keep asking the same Only Holmes knows the real truth, which is that he is on the run. While in Philadelphia, he had received a tip that officials from Fort Worth have been looking for him in connection with the Minnie Williams property inheritance scheme. Plus, this Benjamin Peitzel plan has gone kind of sideways too. He hadn't expected the body to be discovered and correctly identified so quickly, plus he hadn't counted on it making national news the way it did. On top of all this, there was one loose end that Holmes hadn't bothered to tie up. And that was Marion Hedgepath, the career criminal he met in prison, who he'd promised a commission for referring him to a lawyer to help in the Peitzel life insurance scheme. An agent who worked for the life insurance company never quite bought the story about Pitesell's untimely death, but the company did end up issuing the payout, so it was done with. That agent happened to be in St. Louis on unrelated business and heard about a letter from Marion Hedgepath in association with the Peitzel case. And he's like, wait a minute. Let me see that letter. Yeah, we need to go ahead and reopen this case. It turns out Holmes refused to pay Hedgepath that commission he promised him, and Hedgepath said, no, 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 you're not getting away so easily. He wrote a letter to law enforcement officials revealing everything he knew about Holmes' plan. Hedgepath was hoping to exchange his information for a change in the terms of his sentence. And while he'd tried stuff like this before, the letter included details that could not have been known unless he had personally talked to Holmes or the shady lawyer. After this, the Pinkerton detectives are hired to go and find Holmes. By this time, Holmes and the Pitesell family, still with Carrie and her children separated, have gotten as far as Toronto. Holmes is actually preparing to depart for Berlin, where he'll be pretty well out of reach of any U.S. agencies. It's at this point he decides that he can't keep this up with the Pitesell children, and he forces the two girls to undress and climb into a trunk, where he gassed them and buried them in the trunk in the basement of a rental home. He then poisoned the third child, Howard, and attempted to burn the body in a fireplace of a separate property. After this, he moves Carrie and her other two children to Burlington, Vermont, where he tells them they'll finally, finally be reunited with their husband and father. So, law enforcement is closing in on Holmes. They know he's in the city, and the larger police force of Boston is there to back them up now, too. Officials in Philadelphia issue a warrant for his arrest on the grounds that he may have murdered a man where the body has been misidentified. But the deputy superintendent of police in Boston is like, no, I don't know if that's enough. And then they get a wire from Fort Worth, Texas that says Holmes wanted for horse theft of one horse. And the superintendent is like, yeah, boys, bring him in. So on November 17, 1894, Holmes goes out for a little walk. Police officials sidle up next to him And they arrest him. At first he pretends to be shocked. But then he's like, okay guys, I know what this is about. It's about this murder in Chicago. But you have it all wrong. Let's go talk it out. And then he goes to the station with them. First off, it's kind of funny. He assumes they're after him for something that happened in Chicago. Whereas they're there to talk about Philadelphia. Kind of shot himself in the foot there. But at the station, he sees the agent he knows from the insurance company walk in. And it's at that point he throws up his hands and he's like, listen, you got me. The Peitzel murder was all for a scam, and he confesses. Though he does tell them Carrie Peitzel had nothing to do with it, they arrest her too, and when the full depth of Holmes's plot is exposed to her, she completely breaks down. She tells them everything she knows, and police come to see her as another victim of Holmes as well. Though until they know what's what in this investigation, they do need to hold her in police custody, so the whole group is brought back to Philadelphia. Now, though, Carrie Peitzel is even more worried about her three children, whom she had put in the care of Holmes. Holmes tells them, as he told Carrie Peitzel at one time, they're actually with Minnie Williams, who has taken them to London. The police do some fact-checking, but as we mentioned earlier, no one saw Minnie or his sister alive again after July 5th, 1893. So they put Detective Frank Geyer on the case of locating the missing Peitzel children. Eventually, they release Carrie Peitzel, who fears the worst, and unfortunately, she is right. Geyer and other officials didn't have much hope in finding the children, but Geyer worked tirelessly and eventually found the girls buried in the cellar of the rented home in Toronto. They were not stuffed in a trunk and gassed, as Holmes or later rumors described, but likely poisoned and or suffocated before being buried right in the ground together. They found the burn remains of the third child, Howard, in another rental home in Indianapolis. Unfortunately, no evidence linking the murders to Holmes could be found, so while it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that Holmes did kill them, he could not be tried for it. In October 28, 1895, Holmes stands trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel in Philadelphia. If convicted, he'll be given the death penalty. He pleads not guilty. Now, as the jury selection begins, Holmes' two court-appointed attorneys say that they haven't had enough time to prepare for the case, and they ask for an extension. The judge won't grant it, so they decline taking on the case, right there in the courtroom. And Holmes is permitted to represent himself, which he does, and he completes the cross-examination for the jury selection. They call in a third lawyer. He declines the case as well. Holmes goes on to represent himself the next day too, but by the evening session, the two court-appointed attorneys have rejoined the case. A few days later, at about 7 p.m. on November 2nd, 1895, the jury left the courtroom to deliberate. Two hours went by and whisperings of a mistrial were starting to circulate, but turns out all the jurors actually agreed on the first vote and they just took longer for the sake of appearances and to have dinner. When they returned, the verdict was guilty and Holmes was sentenced to death by hanging. While he waits for his sentence to be carried out, newspapers start trying to buy his confession. Eventually he sells his confession to Hearst newspapers for seventy five hundred dollars, which is nearly two hundred sixty-five thousand in today money. I couldn't find what he planned to do with this money. He certainly had debts to settle, and I did see some mention that his attorney alluded to Holmes's concerns for the security of his children. Maybe one decent thing he would do with his life, finally. But what we do know about the confession is that it was pretty much all lies. He was just making shit up. He even claimed to have murdered people who were well and alive. And for this reason, we can't really take a word of what he says as true. While we're talking about what is and isn't true, this seems like a good place to debunk a couple of myths about H.H. Holmes. First, the murder castle. This is the first time I've uttered the words murder castle in this entire episode, which is unusual because that's usually the first thing people associate with H.H. Holmes. It's said that Holmes built his hotel, later referred to as a castle, specifically to trap and prey on people during the World's Fair. It's said to have been outfitted with secret chambers, soundproof rooms, gas lines used to asphyxiate people, a quick line pit in the basement for disposing of bodies, true horror movie stuff. It's said that he hired and fired building crews so no one would catch on to what he was doing. The truth is, most of these claims were made up by journalists looking to sell papers. The building of the hotel coinciding with the World's Fair was happenstance. The building was already in progress when the announcement of the World's Fair being held in Chicago was made, and his construction crew stopped and started so much because he wasn't paying them. There were some odd features like a hidden compartment between the first and second floors and a back staircase with a trap door and a second floor bathroom, but these were not secrets. Obviously, the builders knew about them, and so did everyone who worked there, and they were actually thought of just as a clever use of space. In fact, the pharmacy staff would nap in the hidden compartment during breaks. He did have some walled up rooms, but they were not soundproof with gas lines. He was just hiding furniture and goods in there that he had bought on credit and never intended to pay for. It didn't even function as a hotel, to be honest. There was no like check-in desk or hotel staff or anything. The first floor was retail space, as he said all along, and the second floor had some long-term renters. He did say he intended to rent out the third floor, but the floor was never finished. Then after the fire, it was mostly closed off. The murder castle reference didn't happen until well into the 1930s when much of what was written in what we would today call tabloid journalism was resurrected and taken as fact. There was actually a quicklime pit in the basement and he did have a glass bending furnace at another location. If he did use either of these to dispose of bodies, if that was his intention, we never found evidence of it. That part is just pure speculation on the part of the newspapers but he could have. And the myths go all the way back to when he first arrived in Chicago and started going by Holmes. It's said that he drew inspiration from the famous fictional detective Sherlock Holmes, but at the time he adopted the alias, the first story featuring detective Sherlock Holmes hadn't even been published yet. That wouldn't happen until nearly a year later. Also, remember the Holtons he bought the pharmacy from? The elderly ailing doctor and his young wife trying to hold together a failing business until one day Holmes suddenly owned the pharmacy and they were never seen again? That story is not true. The Holtons did legitimately sell Holmes their pharmacy. They were a young couple and Mrs. Holton was the doctor, not the mister. She likely sold her practice when she became pregnant. They moved to a nearby neighborhood and they outlived Holmes by far. You can visit their graves in the cemetery nearby. He also often gets the title of America's first serial killer, but this isn't truly accurate either. He wasn't a serial killer like we think of Ted Bundy or Rich Ramirez stalking victims by some kind of compulsion. Holmes was a con man who killed people who got in his way. I mean, have you heard of Dr. Thomas Neal Cream? No? It's okay. We'll have an episode where I tell you all about him, but he was another serial killer who was operating in the Chicago area even before Holmes came to town. But he definitely did not kill hundreds, as some sources say. So to bring it back full circle to his confession, there was a very quotable line from it where Holmes says, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer no more than the poet can help the inspiration to song. And many took this to mean that Holmes was saying he was literally possessed by Satan and that's why he did what he did. But he never said that. Newspapers made it up. So, his execution is scheduled for May 7, 1895. Crowds gathered outside, and about 60 to 80 ticket holders were led in to witness the execution. He initially said he didn't want to make a statement, but he changes his mind and he addresses the crowd and says he is only guilty of two deaths, of which he was indirectly the cause, and he denies having anything to do with the deaths of Ben Pitezel, his children, or the Williams sisters. Most hangings by this time used what became known as the long drop method, where the fall would cause the neck to break, and that was the cause of death rather than strangulation. I don't know if this was a botched execution or not, but even though Holmes' neck did break, it took about 15 minutes for him to die, and he seemed to struggle for a while. Some in the crowd who witnessed it even fainted. Doctors said he was killed immediately, so he didn't feel a thing, but I don't know. No one will call it a clean execution, that's for sure. When Holmes was still alive and newspapers were making him offers for his confession, he started getting offers of another kind as well. People were offering to buy his body after his execution, to study, to display, who knows what these people were going to do with him. And being kind of familiar with a bit of grave robbing himself, this disturbed him. And he asked his attorney to see that his final wishes for his burial were carried out, which was for his body to be encased in cement inside his coffin. And that's exactly what they did. They filled the coffin partway with cement, put Holmes' body in, poured cement over the top, sealed it up, and brought it to the receiving vault in Holy Cross Cemetery, where two guards stood outside the vault all night long. The next afternoon, a crowd of about 100 onlookers lingered about as Holmes's coffin was moved to its final resting place. The cemetery staff was not enough to move the concrete-filled coffin out of the receiving vault, though, and a number of men from the press and spectators who were gathered were recruited to help. Four more barrels of concrete were poured into the grave on top of the coffin before it was filled, with no marker to indicate the final resting place of H.H. Holmes. Over the next couple days, thousands of people came to visit the site. Also, almost immediately, rumors that Holmes had managed to escape the gallows began to circulate. They said he had paid someone to hang another man in his place, or that he had bribed the prison staff to help orchestrate his escape by concealing a cadaver below the platform to be substituted as his body. Other rumors popped up that anyone who had anything to do with the H.H. Holmes case was cursed following his death. Frank Geyer, the detective who found the bodies of the Peitzel children, became seriously sick. The judge who presided over the trial and lead coroner both died suddenly from undetected illnesses. A coroner's physician who had testified at the trial suddenly died from blood poisoning. The prison superintendent committed suicide. The jury foreman was electrocuted. The list goes on and on. I have to admit, I did not know until I started researching this episode just how persistent the legend of H.H. Holmes was. It just keeps stacking story on top of story on top of story. And if you're wondering right now, what else could there be to this story? After all, he's been caught, executed, and buried in concrete. What more is there? Well, there is more. In 2011, H.H. Holmes' great-great-grandson, Jeff Mudgett, who has inherited some of Holmes's diaries and such, wrote a book called Bloodstains that explores the theory that Jack the Ripper and H.H. Holmes were the same person and that Holmes did manage to dodge his execution. In full transparency, I have not read the book, but I did cover Jack the Ripper only a few episodes ago, and while I know this does not make me an expert, I did a little research on the topic specifically, and I am filing the Holmes-Ripper theory under Not At All Likely. It does sound like it would make for good television, though. So, in 2017, the History Channel takes up Jeff Mudgett's case to explore the Holmes Ripper theory and also confirm if Holmes did indeed escape the gallows. With the help of the University of Pennsylvania's Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, they decide to exhume Holmes' body. The findings of the team were this. They confirmed via dental records and detailed phrenology records that the remains did indeed match H.H. Holmes. As far as DNA, they couldn't determine if it was him specifically, but they did confirm that the person exhumed from that grave was a descendant of the Mudgett family. This story of H.H. Holmes was truly a wild ride. The legacy left behind by this man, in my opinion, almost exceeds the true story of what he really was. And this is not to minimize what he was, because he was a monster. And for the myth and lore to take on a life of its own the way that it did and become so accepted for fact, that's really something else. So I've linked to all of my sources in the episode blog, including the book H.H. Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil by Adam Selzer, which you should definitely read if you're interested in this case. A lot of people know the book, The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, published in 2003, which is a fact-based telling of the 1893 Chicago World's Fair told alongside a fictionalized account of H.H. Holmes, which is excellent. You should read that too. But again, the story of H.H. Holmes in that book is fiction, whereas Selzer's account is nonfiction. An interesting side note on Devil in the White City, though, Leonardo DiCaprio bought the rights to produce a film version of the story in 2010, and he is working on creating a television series based on the story that I read will star Keanu Reeves. It's not slated to be released until after 2023, but I will 100% be watching that. Also on the episode blog, you can see photos of Holmes, all four of his wives, his one confirmed victim, Benjamin Paitzel, and more. That is at a murder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Good Night for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like actual Victorian houses for sale, book recommendations, and more. The bonus content for the Housekeeper and Butler-tier patrons for this episode is a handful of other true crime stories from the Chicago World's Fair. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com, Also follow me on Instagram or TikTok at a goodnight for a murder. Please rate and review and share with your friends. Thank you for listening and I will talk to you again soon.